I'm Lee Bergstein. And I'm Cooper Knowlton. Are you, though? And this is Two Lawyers Walk Into a Bar. Uh, we're a podcast that talks to lawyers over booze. And today we're joined by Eitan Goldman of Zuckerman Spader. His practice is primarily consists of white-collar criminal defense, securities, and complex commercial litigation. Eitan's also the uh, former Director of Enforcement for the U.S. Commodities Future Trading Commission, or it's or it's, it's more commonly known by the young folks, CFTC. Um, and he also was the youngest member of the trial team that prosecuted uh, Timothy McVeigh, and we'll talk about that a little bit later on in the podcast. But first off, good to have you, Eitan. Uh, good to be here. So I'll let Cooper talk about what we're drinking because Cooper is the alcohol it aficionado. Kinda, so, Cooper, uh, how do you make an old-fashioned? You make an old-fashioned with bourbon <laughs> with bitters with a cherry on top apparently it's good and orange you're looking and you're literally sugar. looking at the and orange as sugar. you say orange sugar apparently is the crucial ingredient sugar bitters if you ask me what bitters are i have zero idea <laughs> <laughs> so we'll start there do you know what bitters are not really i, mean, I know what they taste like yeah. but no i don't know what if they're from like a root or something, <laughs> I have zero you have to idea. Go forage for them. But you might have to forage for bitters. What's your What's Lo, your did take? Did you forage for bitters? <laughs> she didn't. Okay. What is your take on the old fashioned made by our trusty assistant, Low? It's yummy. It's good. I've never had one with a cherry though. I didn't know that was a thing. <laughs> it is now. So why old fashioned? Why is that your drink of choice today? We're in a uh, advertising company, right? And. Um, I was a big fan of Mad Men when that show was on, and you know, Don Draper would always order Old Fashioned. That's where I first heard of it. And it makes me feel more like Don Draper. I think <laughs> I look more like John Hamm if I have an Old Fashioned in my hand. I was going to say there is a vague resemblance. Yeah. Well, you're not the first. <laughs> you very much are the first. I'm going to taste it. Let's go around and just talk about what we think about the Old Fashioned. I think we should just jump in. You don't want to no. discuss the Old Fashioned a little bit more? I think we've already discussed it plenty. So, Eitan, why don't you start off by telling us a little bit about where you grew up and childhood background? I grew up in uh, suburban Philadelphia, with the exception of second grade, which I spent in Beersheba, Israel, when uh, my dad took a year sabbatical. Were either your parents lawyers? No. Um, my, uh, they're both teachers. My dad is actually a computer science professor at Villanova who just retired last year. Did you ever think about becoming a lawyer when you were a kid? I don't know at what point it occurred to me. It definitely was fully formed by the time I graduated college. I knew not just that I wanted to be a lawyer, but that I wanted to be a trial lawyer by then. Where'd you go to college? Michigan State. I went to Michigan. Sorry to hear that. <laughs> I went there for law school, actually, not for undergrad. So I'm like not really a Michigan man. But well, you can you can claim it. Sort of it's claim a it. weird thing about rivalries. I mean, I went out to East Lansing, you know, from Philadelphia, not having any opinion about the University of Michigan. And after four years there, I'd root for ISIS against Michigan. I mean, I, for no <laughs> rational reason, I hate the University of Michigan. Deep I never, passion. I never really cared that much. I mean, again, I was, I, I took a couple years off between undergrad and law school. I was like 26 or 27 by the time I started law school. So I didn't quite feel the same way about Michigan State, but certainly my friends who went there for undergrad, like Michigan State was little brother. They, they just hated Michigan State. Yeah, I really enjoyed Michigan State in the NCAA tournament this year because I'm a Syracuse fan. Oh. It's a great game. Sorry to hear that. Yeah. So that's a nightmare too. So by the time you leave undergrad, it's fully baked into your mind that you are going to be a lawyer. Right. 
And do you immediately, are you studying for the LSAT when you're at Michigan State or do you take some time off? I take the LSAT when I'm at Michigan State. I don't know if I would say I was studying for it, but I took the LSAT. I didn't take any time out, uh, time off, which I probably should have. I, I, I like the idea of taking time off between college and law school. Um, I remember getting on the Metro. I started in the honors program at Department of Justice after I graduated law school or after I clerked for a year. And I remember getting on the red line, the Metro, and going to work and having a full-fledged panic attack thinking – this is the next 40 years of my life. I'm going to be an adult and I'm going to be working and I'm going to be in a freaking office. And I think I would have appreciated law school more if I had taken time off to, you know, work and understand. What do you, what do you think you would have done if you had taken time off? Uh, I don't know. I probably would have done, you know, maybe, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe worked in like uh, some, uh, I was really into, to, the environmental movement at that time, maybe I would have interned at the, you know, Natural Resources Defense Council or something in, in Washington. Hmm. I don't know what I would have done. But I think the academic lifestyle where, you know, you get up or don't get up, go to, especially at Yale, where there's, you know, no grades and really no pressure at all. Um, that is a luxury that I don't think I fully appreciated because I had never been in, you know, the nine to five workforce. So you went straight from Michigan State to Yale. Correct. Yeah. What was that transition like? Um, it was great, actually. I mean, I, I had a really, really fun time in law school. Um, the weird thing is I was not the only person in my class at Yale from Michigan State. I, I got there in orientation and people were like, oh, you went to Michigan State. We got someone else here from Michigan State and he played football at Michigan State. And I was in the football dorm at Michigan State and I don't remember meeting anybody who, you know, was – headed for law school, particularly not Yale. And then I ended up bumping into this guy and it was Dean Altabelli who was academic All-American and who had picked off two passes against Michigan when I was a sophomore. It's really digging it to you, Cooper, even in the anecdotes. <laughs> it's, it's just bizarre that and he ended up, you know, we ended up becoming uh, friends. Yale is such a, small, such a small school that you really end up knowing everybody in your class. What was the um, trial-based practice like at Yale? Do they have practical classes where you could hone your trial skills? Yale has almost no practical classes of any sort. It's almost, you know, looked down upon with contempt, right? Yeah, you learn that on the bar or, you know, we don't do black letter law here. It's all law and something, law and this, law and philosophy, law and whatever. So it wasn't the classes. It was actually the extracurriculars, right. um, the trial practice, like the trial competition that I really, you know, learned something. In fact, the evidence, they, at Yale, they had no one to teach evidence at that time. I, I taught, I learned evidence. I didn't learn. I took the evidence class taught by someone who not only had not, never practiced law, he didn't even go to law school. He was a <laughs> philosophy PhD. And, you know, evidence, there are actually rules of evidence with numbers. And, right. and so Where just- the questions like, what do you think rule 702 means? Totally. Except <laughs> for, I don't even think we got to, to rule 702, but it was all about- you know, the epistemological reason for this and that and what do we think of it and, you know, people just spouting off, which at that that was actually pretty frustrating because I wanted to, you know, learn the actual rules of evidence. Kind so, of important. Yeah, yeah, you'd think. Kind of a fun – it sounds like a fun class though, evidence taught by a philosophy professor. A good like secondary class. It shouldn't be your core evidence class. Mm, okay. <laughs> <laughs> you lived it. I'm just – I was frustrated. I mean there were definitely fun out there courses at Yale. Uh 
I think my favorite was um, one called Capitalism or Democracy, where one lefty professor sat at one end of the table and one slightly less lefty professor sat at the other end, <laughs> and the students just jumped in, and we read like Hayek and F Milton Friedman, and it was it was really very interesting. Nothing to do with the law, but it was really interesting. Did you have any sense when you were at Yale about what your legal, what you wanted your legal career to look like? Did you know? Did you think you wanted to go into government after? Did you think going to a big firm, academia? Uh, I thought I wanted to try cases, and I thought I wanted to be a prosecutor. Or I knew I wanted to be a prosecutor. I mean, that's really you know why I went to law school. So, and you you referenced the trial practice competition. Um, was that formative for you, or was that? It was. It was. It was. Yeah, I guess it was formative because it was just so much fun. You know, I mean, it was, and and that's been consistent for the last. You know, when did I start law school? In nineteen ninety. Jesus. So, the last twenty eight years, the thing that I have enjoyed doing most professionally is trial practice I and mean, cross-examining people and, you know, making summations. And, and that you know, kind of carries over to things like uh, taking depositions of adverse witnesses, you know, where you can just be as big of an asshole as you want to be. And uh, I don't know why. I just that's, – that's the kind of thing that I have felt – I can't believe I get paid for this. This is awesome. I would do this for free as opposed to, you know, the, the rest of the legal practice, which is – I mean, it can be rewarding in its own right, but really is not as, like, uh, thrillingly exciting. Were you thinking federal prosecutor? Were you considering going into state work? I was thinking federal. I, I interned at the U.S. Attorney's Office in Boston between my first and second summer. Right. Uh, and that, you know, I applied for that because I thought I wanted to be a federal prosecutor and confirmed that I did. So then after that summer, I applied for the uh, the honors program, which at the time, and I don't know if it's still true or not, was the only way you could go right from law school to being a federal prosecutor. But you did take a year off between law school and going to the honors program. You you clerked for a year, right? I clerked in Israel for a year for uh, Justice of the Supreme Court named Aaron Barak, who used to come to Yale every year when the Israeli Supreme Court was in recess mm -hmm. for like a three-week compressed course. And he used to take some American, you know, graduate from Yale back with him to do comparative law research um, mm -hmm. in Israel. So I, I lived in Jerusalem for a year, clerked for Barack. That's a that's a very unique thing to have done. Yeah, yeah, there's not a did, lot. Did any lot of, of your numbers. professors or any of your mentors tell you that you should get a clerkship in the United States and going over to Israel for a year would potentially not be, not look as great on your resume? Was that ever a concern? There were definitely professors of mine who said you really want to clerk in the United States. That, that kind of relationship with the judge and that kind of right. exposure to American law is, you know, irreplaceable. And and I actually had a couple. I was considering that for a while, and I had a couple interviews with judges when I was a second year. Um, and it just the prospect seemed incredibly boring to me. Hmm. Also, I didn't get any offers. I mean, I remember being asked by a judge and. I never wanted to do appellate court. I would always have done district court, but I remember being asked by a judge uh, in the Southern District of New York during an interview what I enjoyed most about being on the Yale Law Journal. And I answered her truthfully. I said nothing. <laughs> and, you know, she expected me to talk about the majesty of the law and, you know, how much I love source citing. And I, I hated Law Journal. I mean, you're, you know, doing clerical work for 
articles that are going to be read by like 12 people in history. Yeah. Was you mentioned the trial practice program? Is that like a, a MOOC court program yeah. where you went and competed against yeah. other schools? Uh, no, just internal. Internal, okay. Yeah. And did you get a sense uh, there that you were kind of good at this? Was that the feeling that you got? Yeah. Yeah, no, I did. I, I developed that that there and that kind of confidence and you know, standing up on my hind legs and also the kind of different skills that you bring to trial practice. Because I remember in my trial practice class, it wasn't something that was on my radar. And obviously I became a, I became a state prosecutor, not a federal prosecutor. Right. And it was just a, a, a fun elective to take. You know, I had a I was thinking that I wanted to be an entertainment lawyer or, or a screenwriter or something else. And I remember doing my first opening statement and afterwards there was this adrenaline rush that I – and I wasn't very athletic, so I never felt it in sports. But I felt a rush of adrenaline that I'm, I, I'm good at this. I know how yeah. to do this. There's something innate that allows me to be good at this. Yeah, no, I think that's right. I think that you know, obviously experience matters and – can polish technique yeah. and learn rules, but I do think that there's something innate about it, and um, and the adrenaline rush. I mean, one of the hardest things about trying cases is is kind of the letdown afterwards when yeah. all the adrenaline you know, seeps out of your body, and it always would take me a while, you know, at least a couple of weeks, to be able to go back to pushing paper again right. because it's nothing's as exciting as you know being in trial. Yeah, I mean the the sad thing is that. Trying cases is such an infinitesimally small portion of what you know most lawyers, even most litigators, do. Right, litigation is not trying cases. It's Overwhelmingly not. It's almost never in, in your client's interest to try the case. And I don't think most law students or or young lawyers really understand or appreciate the distinction between the two words. Right, you know, trial work and litigation to- totally separate and apart from each other. Yeah, yeah, and then, you know there are litigation partners at big law firms who, you know, never tried a case, and um, I think that's getting more and more to be the case. Right, I think it's getting more and more extreme. Trials are harder and harder to come by, just because you know the economic um, f- forces that make it worth rolling the dice and going to trial are are pretty powerful powerfully stacked against that. Either in law school or, or your early time at the U.S. Attorney's Office, any mentors that really stand out to you, people who – it sounds like you didn't have an evidence professor. So <laughs> people who really started to work with you to develop your trial skills early on? You know, in terms of mentors, I think my my two biggest mentors were the two lead prosecutors on the Oklahoma City cases. Um uh, Joe Hartzler, who was the lead prosecutor in McVeigh, and Larry Mackey, who was the lead prosecutor on the Nichols trial. And those guys, I kind of tried to model my approach to trying cases and also my approach to the law after them, mm-hmm. um, mostly by, you know, watching and mimicking. Was there anything in particular about them that you were trying to mimic? Um, yeah, I mean, I think... I think it, it, it's more than just the particular techniques, you know, that they brought to bear in the courtroom, more of kind of uh, feeling like they were the moral center of the of the uh, trials. You know, it was uh, – they're very kind of good government 
guys and um, kind of the ethos of hard blows but fair ones and you know, the government turning square corners. Um, and you know, also they were they were just they they were really really effective at connecting with the jury. Um, and we heard you know in the lead up up to the McVeigh trial, there have been all these articles about how we were going to lose and we got it wrong and there was this John Doe 2 character out there and it was really a government sting operation gone awry and all these stupid conspiracy theories mm -hmm. that, you know, as the government we couldn't really respond to. Sure. So even though it seemed to us that we had a ridiculously strong case, you know, this was right after the O.J. Simpson trial where mm -hmm. they had a ridiculously strong case and lost. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, actually uh, Hartzler on his office door had an article about the OJ case gone eight months and you know for prosecutors there's always a temptation if you think well this evidence is relevant I can get it in maybe it makes this much of a difference it's marginal and it's really a temptation to overtry the case and Joe was very much about you know, giving the defense a small target to shoot at keeping it lean less mm. is more so you know OJ Simpson took eight months McVeigh took 17 days oh wow and you have to be pretty ruthless in terms of cutting things that, you know, if it's not a direct headshot, you just leave it out. It's just not worth it because, you know, if, if, a, if a trial goes too long, it's usually the government gets blamed and you never know what – I mean, I don't think the prosecutors in OJ thought that, you know, Mark Furman's use of racial epithets on a tape was going to become the deciding issue in a case where they had, you know, overwhelming DNA sure. evidence. Yeah. So bring us back though. How do you go from – you're clerking in Israel. Mm -hmm. You come back. You go to the. You you start at the DOJ in Washington. Yeah. And and how do you go from starting there to a couple years later, trying a case against Timothy McVeigh? Um, I was in the criminal division of the Department of Justice as an honors grad. They didn't at that point ask you where you wanted to go. So I was sent to the terrorism and violent crime section which no longer exists because now there's a national security division. Um, but at the time, the criminal division had this section called the terrorism and violent crime section before there was actually terrorism litigation. So it was unbelievably boring. Um, you know, the, the, I, and they got two honor grads that year, which was ridiculous. So we would sit in an office and like take three-hour lunches, work out twice a day. I mean it was really a bad place to you know, be a young lawyer with fire in your belly to, to try cases. Sure. So um, I got sent over to the U.S. Attorney's Office for D.C. for a detail. Uh -huh. I was a special assistant U.S. Attorney for eight months there. And that was back when uh, misdemeanors in Washington were jury triable, at least some of them. So my website bio says Eitan Goldman has tried more than 50 cases to verdict, which is absolutely true. What it doesn't say is that you know 30 cases were in an eight-month period of time when I was trying – Criminal misdemeanor <laughs> cases in DC. Eight months, thirty it, trials, and then the rest wild. of my career, another you know twenty-five trials right. to verdict. And that was that was you know just the wild west because you'd stand up and you'd try a case, you'd open to a jury based on what was on a jacket because odds were you'd never seen that case before. Wow, um, you're just reading the indictment basically, <laughs> right, right, or the complaint. Yeah. But that must have been unbelievable experience. You must have just got just getting those reps. I can imagine was huge. Oh my God. And it was, it was huge. And, you know, in terms of just getting up on your feet all the time. Right. Right. I mean, it's really hard to ever be nervous after that standing uh -huh. in front of a jury. 
Um, and also, it was just so much fun. Right. You know, and I was 26 years old. And, you know, we didn't have cell phones there. We had pagers, which, of course, we had to pay for ourselves. And we'd get paged, you know, come to this courtroom and you walk in and pick a jury. You know? With, within the Department of Justice, is that scene is kind of like a, a place that you don't want to end <laughs> up? And what, the D.C. U.S. Attorney's Office? Yeah. Well, it's the one place where you can be a federal prosecutor and try cases right. in what amounts to state court. Right. And so there was a program there where you could uh, – uh, justice where you could go be a special AUSA in the Eastern District of Virginia or D.C. And the Eastern District, Eastern District of Virginia – you know, maybe you try two cases if you're there for six months. Maybe you try right. one, and it'd be a federal case. In D.C., you just get thrown in. Uh-huh. And so I chose D.C., and, you know, a lot of people uh, think that, well, if you go to the D.C. U.S. Attorney's Office, you learn bad habits because, mm-hmm. you know, you're just trying things by the seat of your pants, and you don't really learn how to prep witnesses and all that other stuff. But uh, I didn't – I thought it was a terrific experience. And then the Oklahoma City bombing happened, and I got called back to Maine Justice and sent out to Oklahoma City. How long were you in Oklahoma City for for that? I lived in Oklahoma City in a hotel in a strip mall in Oklahoma City for the six longest months of my life until the case was uh, transferred to Denver. And that was before Russell Westbrook, so there was really nothing to <laughs> There's no thunder there. Right. There's no thunder there. Yeah, no KD. Uh, Oklahoma City was... Uh, what do your days look? Place. What do your days look like when you're in Oklahoma City? We had a uh, underground command center uh, without windows, which was you know, secret because nobody knew where the next right. attack was coming from. Um, asbestos crumbling off the walls. It was unbelievably depressing. There's like one lunch place. So you go out at that point. You got to Oklahoma City at like twelve thirty, and it'd be deserted. Like no secretaries having lunch, no nothing, just no people. Yeah. And it's a, it's a very different place now. I went back for the 20th anniversary a couple of years ago, and there's like a thriving downtown. There's an art scene. There's uh, Actually, ironically, that city has been transformed not just by the thunder but also by a lot of federal money that mm-hmm. flowed in afterwards. You know, cl- the Clinton administration really uh, was instrumental in revitalizing downtown Oklahoma City. Not even, not even revitalizing, vitalizing it in the first instance. I was, was annoyed that uh, Clinton didn't carry Oklahoma in 1996. What did you learn going from, you know, you call it almost fly by the seat of your pants, trial work to a, a well-funded, long-term, really serious investigation? What was, were, were some of the key things that you learned in making that transition and how difficult was that for you? It was night and day. I mean, it was, you know, think about being on a task force that is, it's different from a normal prosecutor's job, but it's way different from D.C. because you have one case, right? And you learn everything about that case. So as the junior member of the team, you know, I think I knew more about the facts of that case than anyone except for maybe the case agent. And, you know, you prepare exhaustively. I mean, I think I must have met with uh, the cooperators in that case, the the Fortiers, 20 times. You know, I lived, you know, not lived, but I went into this like state jail where the cooperators being held near our offices over and over and over again. And you just, I mean, it is, especially in that case where the FBI inter- interviewed 20,000 different people. And 
you know, you had the luxury to really devote and maybe it wasn't really unlimited resources, but it felt unlimited. It felt like we I mean we had a task force of you know, scores of agents and we basically ran down every lead. And in that case you could find you could find someone if you wanted to, you could find a witness just because of the publicity and because I think of people wanting to help and also people in the country feeling like they wanted to be part of something. You could find someone if you wanted to implicate the Pope in the bombing, you could find someone who swore <laughs> that he saw the Pope and McVeigh and Ramzi Youssef dancing around a rider truck singing that they just bombed the Murrah building, right? There's just so many different versions and you really had to be able to separate the, the wheat from the shaft. And so you're the, saying the Pope was involved in the Oklahoma City the, yeah, but not that's Pope the, Francis. That's the, the old Pope. That's the tagline of this right. episode. That's <laughs> the fake news coming out of here. We're going to get so many listens now. Yeah, right. Is... What? So it's six months that you're in Oklahoma City just preparing the case, and then the case gets transferred to Denver? Over our over our opposition. Oh, really? Yeah. Uh, Janet Reno promised Frank Keating, who was the governor of Oklahoma, that we would fight to keep the case in Oklahoma, despite the difficulty in been persuading anyone with a straight face that you could get a fair jury in Oklahoma. Right. So then we lost and the case moved to Denver and my life got immeasurably better. Do you think that would have happened today? Because now I think I feel like because of the internet, regional concerns over prejudice might be tempered somewhat by how global our society is. Or do you think it still would have it still would have been transferred to Denver? I don't think it would make a difference. I mean, it was you know the bombing was a national story, so it's not like anyone in Denver hadn't heard about it. But in Oklahoma, you know, nine o two a.m. on April nineteenth, nineteen ninety five, is like the time from which all time started. Like the world, you know, began then. I mean, it really is a different level of intensity and personalized far more to people in Oklahoma than people elsewhere in the country or the world. Did, did your life change on a personal level, like post that trial? Like were you – because you were involved in this big case, did you feel like going back to Washington and just sort of your your job prospects beyond the Justice Department, that that, that changed significantly? I didn't go back to Washington. I didn't. Uh, I went to New York. I started a, as an assistant U.S. attorney in the Southern District of New York. Um, so, you know, my life changed. Um it, it is a little weird to do kind of the most worthwhile thing in your professional career when you're 27 and have kind of everything after that be a little bit of a, of a step down. I mean I loved being a AUSA in the Southern District and I've actually had, had been lucky enough to have had really fulfilling and exciting professional experiences since then. But in terms of feeling like you're put on a planet for – particular purpose mm-hmm. and I'm not a you know religious guy but during the two and a half years I was on the task force I really felt oh this is you know this is why I'm here and on the one hand better for that to happen once than never sure on the other hand you know weird having that all be over before you turn 30. Was there a hangover period when you sort of got back to New York and you felt like eh this isn't <laughs> that important or that interesting or well, in New York, you know, there's a rotation. So you uh, start in the general crimes uh, section and the motto at that time, the general crimes section was no case too small. So, you know, you're do, doing like illegal reentry cases where the only thing you have to prove is this guy is here and he was previously convicted of an aggravated felony. Right. So, you know, those cases, you're not 
stealing really mail. adding any value. What? Stealing mail. There's a lot of mail fraud. There's a lot of <laughs> mail fraud. Um, it was just, you know, a very different kind of practice. I'm proud to have been in the Southern District of New York, and I think that, you know, it's widely regarded as the strongest U.S. Attorney's Office for good reason. But there's an attitude there. Um, you know, I don't think any of the prosecutors I saw in the Southern District of New York were as good as Larry Mackey or Joe Hartzler, you know, who were in Central District of Illinois U.S. Attorney's Office and Indiana. But if you go to the Southern District, you're it kind of – it's inculcated that there's really no decent prosecutors outside of Manhattan, you know. Fine, maybe White Plains, but, you know, that's it. I mean, when I was interviewing uh, for the Southern District, you interview twice – you interview with two people in the criminal division and two people in the civil division. And they tell you – I mean, I had friends from law school who were at the Southern District then. They said, okay, you're going to be asked if you get – I understand that your preference is for the criminal division, but if you get an offer from the civil division, would you take it? And you're supposed to say, yes, I really want to be in the criminal division, but, you know, Southern District is – is Valhalla, and I would sweep the floors <laughs> here if I had the opportunity. And so I got the question from the chief of the civil division, and uh, she said, would you accept an offer from the civil division? I said, no. She goes, really? You know, what makes you so sure that you want to become a prosecutor? And I said, I am a prosecutor. I want to remain a prosecutor. And I, I think that, you know, that is – there is a little bit of, of an attitude that you know, people in that office and alumni from that office have, and a lot, you know, a lot of it is you can understand because they really do great, great work there, and they have generally, uh, you know, I think higher quality assistance than you know you have in a lot of other offices. I mean, generally younger and more credentialed and more driven, but you know, there are a lot of good prosecutors outside of outside of uh, Manhattan, Bronx, and and. Westchester counties. I think U.S. attorneys in other cities and states feel the same way because a friend who's uh, in the USA in Southern District told me he went to a conference recently and with a bunch of other AUSAs from all over the country and they were coming up to him like he was the holy grail going, you're from New York? Come, come meet this guy. He's from New York. So I think it's – I think the mindset that New York is different is somewhat pervasive throughout DOJ. It is. It is and I think that, you know, there's good and bad in that. I mean, and there certainly is. Uh, I don't know if you guys watch Billions. I don't. But the the rivalry between the Eastern and Southern District of New York's on Billions is only slightly less vitriolic than the actual rivalry was. You know, when I was there, I actually applied uh, to both. I applied to the Eastern District of New York, and I made it all the way through the process. And I interviewed with the U.S. Attorney there, who was a guy named Zach Carter. This is 1997, and I haven't. Didn't hear back from him before I got the offer from the Southern, and I still haven't heard back from him. Oh, you're on the waiting list. <laughs> yeah, apparently. Cooper, you can't watch Billions anymore. <laughs> Cooper's taking a TV out of his apartment. He no longer has a TV unit. I have a That's laptop. Sick. I have an internet. My girlfriend and I have decided that we don't want to have a TV in our apartment, and I spent the entire ride down here with Lee giving me a lot of crap. If you about want to cross-examine him at this point, <laughs> I, I am take it flabbergasted. I seriously, what what precipitated that decision? I think I used the word flummox. So we, we're flummox, and we can start a new podcast. Flabbergasted called, flummox. I think it's mostly an aesthetic decision. I think it's driven mostly by aesthetic concerns. That just having a big TV doesn't 
look very pleasing. You know, they have so. flat screens. You don't have to have it in the middle <laughs> This of is your... really not where I saw this podcast We're going to we're gonna have to cut this. Otherwise, Cooper is going to be single soon. <laughs> does your wife – I mean, does your girlfriend listen to the podcast? She's, I don't think she's listened to a single yeah. one. So this is pretty deep into the podcast I think we're also. safe, yeah. She might listen to the first five minutes and then okay. pretend like she's listened. So I think we're, <laughs> I think we're good. <laughs> so how long were you uh, at, the, at SDNY? Uh, five years, 98 to 2003. And did you know how, how long into your time there did you start thinking about going into private practice? When we uh, moved to New York uh, from Denver, my then-girlfriend, later wife, said, you know, we should think about buying here. It was in 1998, and I told her with perfect certainty that the real estate market was in a bubble uh-huh. in 1998. So we rented for five years and ended up uh, in Park Slope – in like a shitty one-bedroom walkthrough in 2003, uh, pregnant. So I had never saw myself at a law firm, didn't really have any interest in law firms, but kind of became financially imperative to make money. And also, um, I figured if I'm going to go to law firm, I don't want to be living the, like, the life of a New York law firm partner. Mm-hmm. So we, we moved back down to D.C. Gotcha. And what was that transition like? Um, Not the New York to D.C., but more just sort of on a professional level. What was – I had never paid much attention to law firms, never interested in them. I never heard of Zuckerman Spader. And so I was actually pretty close to going to a big New York law firm – actually, yeah, big New York law firm's office in Washington. Um, and a friend of a friend put me in touch with someone at Zuckerman, and I just kind of went over there and fell in love with the firm. I mean it's a – pretty unique place you know they um i think if you took 100 lawyers off the street and you asked them would you trade some money for you know better colleagues more time with your family more interesting work you know the ability to like turn down work that you find morally repugnant i think 100 out of 100 say yes Totally. But that's not the way the market works. You know, with the lateral market being what it is and the emphasis on, you know, average profits per partner, that's just for whatever reason, the market is not responsive to the fact that a lot of lawyers would rather have that career and that life. And Zuckerman, by whatever luck, genius, happenstance has been able to do that. How were they able to convey that to you when you went to visit? Um, just meeting the people. Like I really liked everyone I met there. And, you know, all law firms, especially when you're having, you know, about to be a new parent, will kind of mouth the platitudes of, oh, yeah, we're well, you know, family, balance, blah, 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 blah. But at Zuckerman, it, uh, it just seemed more genuine. And um, a lot of law firms – this is my experience. I'll say, look, we're a law firm. All, all law firms are kind of the same. You know, if you're, if there's another law firm telling you you're not going to have to bill, you know, 2,200 hours a year, they're, they're probably lying to you. I mean, you, know, you may not have to technically, but, you know, you're sure going to have pressure to you. You're sure going to want to. Or if, you know, they tell you that you're not going to, you know, live on a plane, it's travel is part of having a national practice. And I think that any law firm that says all law firms are the same really means that that law firm sucks. And, um, you know, Zuckerman, I mean, one of the things 
they did. And one of the things that we do now in recruiting is a little bit counterintuitive. We promise people that they're going to make less money if they come to Zuckerman, <laughs> which, you know, usually is not something you lead with. Yeah. Did you find the work, did you enjoy the work sort of being on the other side after all the years in the government? Did you enjoy being a defense attorney? You know what? I did. I did. And one of my first experiences as a defense attorney, and, and I've always been, you know, kind of knee-jerk pro-government, and I, I still actually probably am pro-government. One of the things I wanted to do when I left the government was to be a talking head and to just defend the government because it really – annoyed me and pissed me off when, you know, in the Oklahoma City case, the defense attorneys were going around the world spinning these conspiracy theories and the only thing the Department of Justice spokesperson would say is this has no merit if he was like really in an aggressive mood. <laughs> so I went on on, uh, on uh, MSNBC uh, a lot and, you know, defended my former colleagues during the Martha Stewart trial and all that kind of stuff. So I was, I was in the tank for the government in general. But then one of the first cases I got Zuckerman was representing Ken Langone in a lawsuit that Attorney General or then Attorney General Spitzer brought against him and Dick Grosso involving Grosso's compensation for – as uh, chair of the New York Stock Exchange or as CEO of the New York Stock Exchange. And uh, that was not a righteous case. That was a complete miscarriage of – uh, government authority, and it was a you know the pleading in that case was uh, as dishonest a the complaint was as dishonest a pleading as as I'd ever read up to that point. So, to the extent that you know, I had this I don't want to say naivete, but faith that you know most people in the government want to do the right thing, and I still think most people do. Uh, there are definitely there are definitely exceptions, and you know, that case um, it, it was very very easy to get motivated to. You know, fight a injustice that is being you know, committed by the government, just as injustice committed by anyone else. I want to talk a little bit about your time at CFTC and how that came about. How you ended up uh, going from the firm life sort of back into the government? Well, I had been kind of flirting with going back to the government for basically the entire time I was in private practice. I, mean, I was in partner at Zuckerman Spader from 2003 to 2014. So 11, the longest job I've ever had. But it that wasn't kind of the intention. And, you know, I interviewed for a bunch of different federal jobs while I was there. None of them were kind of quite the right fit. And then in 2014, um, Tim Massad was nominated by President Obama to be the chair of the CFTC, uh, replacing Gary Gensler. And Massad was good friends with a partner of mine who knew that I, you know, had an interest in returning to public service. So he introduced me to Tim and, uh, you know, we hit it off and kind of his enforcement priorities seemed to dovetail with what I would want. And, and I had like almost no experience with CFTC or derivatives or any of that kind of stuff, you know. I mean, I had done securities cases and white collar criminal cases, but, you know, nothing involving the uh, Commodities Exchange Act. Um, but he wanted, you know, kind of a former federal prosecutor and wanted to step up enforcement of the CEA in the you know, wake of the financial crisis and Dodd-Frank and uh, asked me to go and, and, and I did. And it was a steep learning curve, but um, 
really a really a great experience. And was Zuckerman Spader very understanding and very open to you going? Yeah, yeah. Zuckerman um, is used to people doing the revolving door between government, and they're also used to people you know leaving for all sorts of other reasons. You know, I have a partner who's going to be a high school history teacher. And his last day is next week and people leave to do the parent thing. The one thing Zuckerman is not used to and what they don't you know, look at very kindly is leaving to go to another law firm. And it's almost you know, never happened. Gotcha. A lot of people at Zuckerman are people who you – know, whose highest and best use they never thought was being at a law firm, uh, kind of the non-firm law firm. Right. What was your what was when you went back to the, to the government? Did you find it, you know, as fulfilling as you expected it to be? It was it was definitely fulfilling. I mean, it was completely different. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, I did not feel like I practiced law. I felt like I just sat in meetings all day and decided shit. You're a boss. Yeah, yeah. And I had never been a boss in the government. I never wanted to be a supervisor or a section chief or whatever. I wanted to be, you know, in the trenches. And so at the CFTC. You know, one of the frustrations was, well, there's all these other people who are, you know, litigating these cases, trying these cases, investigating these cases. All I'm doing is, you know, sitting in meetings when a decision point is reached and deciding, you know, go or no go or this is acceptable, this isn't acceptable. Um, So that was very different and I don't think it's something that I would have wanted to do forever. But, you know, for the, you know, two and a half years I was there, it was really fun. I did a little homework and I came across that you instituted a policy there where uh, you made it so that the best plea offer was right at the beginning of of a case. Why did you decide to do that and uh, how did you implement that? Yeah, it was uh, the it gets worse policy is what we (laughs) called it. And it really was a holdover from – or carryover from what I had done when I was with the government as a criminal prosecutor because I loved trying cases. But I hated prepping for trial. And, you know, a lot of times in in civil cases, both sides take these really extreme positions and then they get closer and closer to trial. More and more money gets spent and then you get up to the eve of trial and then they finally, you know, settle and they've wasted all this money and all this time getting to that, getting to that place. Right. And there's only a limited amount you can actually do about that in civil litigation because, you know, you have a client gets to decide when things settle. But in the government, you don't. I mean, you have a client, but it's the American people or you know the commission. Um, and I get to the CFTC and it is – they're just – I guess all prosecution enforcement is triage. You always have more deserving targets and you have resources to throw at them. But the CFTC was really an extremist because you know, Dodd-Frank completely exploded their jurisdiction and Congress just wasn't funding them. I think part of it was, you know, intentionally setting the CFTC up to fail because there are, you know, Republican-controlled Congress that couldn't roll back Dodd-Frank, but they could just underfund the agency with the primary responsibility for enforcing Dodd-Frank. So I thought that if we had this it gets worse policy, that would do two things. It would result in more trials, which I think is a good thing because I think you need to uh, present and actually be an agency that's willing to you know, go to battle right. and also encourage defendants that are going to settle to settle early before you go through the you know, land war and 
Asia that is civil litigation in this country and all the depositions and all the discovery and all the other stuff. So, you know, that was the idea. Yeah. So I don't want to take up too much more of your time. I have two more questions for you. Okay. One is, what is, are there any regrets that you have in your career? Anything that you would have done differently? Wow. Um, no big ones, I guess. I mean, they're definitely, there, there are decisions that, that I regret. There are, there, I can think of a couple decisions that I regret, but the overall trajectory I'm, I'm really happy with. And I guess the last one is if you were giving advice to a 1L or a 2L who's in the early stages of their legal career, is there any advice that you would give them if they're interested in sort of having a career trajectory similar to yours? We actually was thinking the same question. You know, for, for law students or even college students who want to be trial attorneys, any, any kind of early advice to give those people? Well, I think in particular for people who want to be trial attorneys but also just in general for people who want to litigate, I don't think that you should plan on spending your entire career in a big law firm. I don't think that that's a viable career path anymore. Um, you know, the, the industry, first of all, you may end up being, you know, a 45-year-old partner who's never tried a case and who is, you know, largely a, a service partner for, for firm clients, which a generation ago is something that you could do. Now, because of just the you know, ruthlessness in terms of chasing profits per partner and eliminating quote unquote inefficient partners, I don't think it's I don't think it's a safe career path anyway. But you know, there's there's cases where we I've tried two cases since I've been back at Zuckerman and they both were against, you know, big law firms and uh, we had an associate on each case and the associate on each case did witnesses, stood up and did witnesses and was a meaningful member of the trial team. That's wild. That's, yeah. unheard, that's unheard of, really. And it's, you know, it was my experience in, in Oklahoma City that I actually did witnesses and and that's an experience you get at the government and experience sometimes you can get at smaller law firms. But the big law firms that we were trying the case against, it, not just – I mean the associates were like – and one of them is not even sitting in the well of the courtroom. They were like filled in on the you know first bench of the gallery. At least they were in the first row. <laughs> is that firm wide or is that you? Are you are, are you the reason the associate was so involved, or is that something that Zuckerman I th- promotes? I think Zuckerman promotes it. And there are you know definitely partners at Zuckerman that you would not necessarily have as substantive a role. Yeah. But you know I think that at big firms that's the rule, not the exception. Here's a question. Suppose you're an associate at a different firm on a trial and you want to kind of tactfully let your partner know, I want to be more involved. I want to be active. Any advice as to how to show that partner that you could be a more meaningful part of the trial? I don't know. I mean, I've you know never been at a big law firm. I would think that just in terms of human nature, if you kind of shamelessly troll for that kind of work, Dangerous and, word right now, but yeah. uh-huh. dangerous word troll right now. But oh yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> when I was at the U.S. Attorney's Office, I was uh, so kind of jonesing for trials that I used to like walk the halls, you know, at in the evenings and see if who was in their offices and if they, you know, had a trial they couldn't do or needed help on something that was going to trial. And I think that you know, if you're an associate at a firm, especially a big firm, you probably can't be too 
aggressive in terms of going after, you know, the work that you want. And, you know, if you're given, you know, uh, a role in a team, using it to kind of uh, tunnel your way into a bigger role and just, you know, seize the opportunity with, you know, the strength of a pit bull. Yeah. So we'd like to close with a lightning round of, of some real fast questions. So you're, we call it a kind of a variation of a cross-examination. So you ready? I'm ready. Okay. Opening or summation? Summation. Cross or direct? Cross. That was an easy one, right? You rolled your eyes at, at that question. <laughs> Favorite commodity? <laughs> uh, <laughs> live cattle futures. <laughs> KD or Westbrook? KD. Okay. That's a, that's a good answer. Um, most memorable trial moment? Wow. Um, when I was in the U.S. Attorney's Office in D.C. trying a criminal misdemeanor case and the defense, it was a disruption of Congress case right after the House flipped in 1994. And the defense called uh, Representative Joe Kennedy and Henry Cisneros. And I was like, you know, who's next, Clinton? And Kennedy's pager went off and he had to be back while he was on cross and he had to go back. And he wasn't a character witness. He was a fact witness, right? Because he was there. It was his hearing. He was like the ranking member. And uh, he's like, I have to go, Your Honor. You know, there's a vote in Congress. And the judge says, you will sit there until Mr. Goldman's finished with you. <laughs> yeah, you know, I was a 26-year-old. I was like, this is awesome. <laughs> most That's em- incredible. Most embarrassing trial moment. We've all had them. Um, Oklahoma City case. Uh, I was uh, – it was the Nichols trial. I was putting on – the agent who had taken Nichols' post-arrest statement, and I was uh, – it was a Friday, so I was stalling a little bit. I wasn't getting to the point very quickly. And the judge who had diabetes and suffered from a low sugar level, the closer we got to lunch, screamed at me to the extent that the headline in the Oklahoma City paper the next day was judge's outburst stuns courtroom. <laughs> and, it, and it was the day that uh, my girlfriend, who later became – my wife had chose to uh, attend because this was like, you know, biggest witness I had the case. Yeah. That's the moment when you really want your pager to go off. <laughs> no shit. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much for your time. This is great. great being here. Thank you so much. Thanks. Thanks.